Here we go. Rejecting the screen, going ISO as we do every Thursday. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast, out west, Adam Stenko, and down south, the number 11 overall pick in the 1984 draft out of Michigan State by the Atlanta Hawks. He's Kevin Willis, the 1992 All-Star, former All-NBA selection, the 03 champ with the San Antonio Spurs. Here's where he ranks on the all-time list. Number 24 in total rebounds, 7th in offensive rebounds, number 43 in minutes played, Number eight in games played, so only Parrish, Kareem, Dirk, Vince, Stockton, Malone, and KG played more NBA games than Kevin Willis. He was in the league for 22 seasons. He's the oldest player to ever play in a game in the modern era. He's one of the first guys that comes to mind when you think about monsters in the post in the 80s and 90s. Kevin, how much are you benching these days? Uh, man, close to about 405, something like that. <laughs> Wait, so what were you benching at your height in the league? Uh, it, 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 it was always there. I just, I just pretty much now work out with, you know, 315 and 355, just work out with that. And um, maybe once in a while I'll, I'll max out. I saw, Adam, I saw Kevin on the street in New York City about eight years ago, across okay. the street near the, near the garden. And I mean, I knew I knew it was Kevin Willis, and I didn't mm-hmm. you know stop and say hello or anything. And and I saw him. I said, "My goodness, could he still play in the league? Do you still feel that way sometimes?" Sometimes I feel that way, but you know, it's just just a different a different time, obviously, and and different athlete um, physicality mindset approach is totally different. And um, so I, I, I like it from where I'm, I, I see it now, you know, sitting back, watching it, catch a few games at the, um, at, the, um, at the arena here in Atlanta and watching the Hawks play. And, and from that perspective, it's pretty good. Kevin, I want to go back. Noah, Noah talked about 84 NBA draft. Olajuwon, Sam Bowie, Michael Jordan, top of that draft. People will remember you mm-hmm. go 11th. What are your recollections from that that draft night? Well, personally, I mean, it was just being overwhelmed that, you know, I was actually invited to the draft and had a tremendous showing in some of the um, big tournaments in Hawaii and the um, the workouts in Chicago. Um, really had a great showing and was, you know, eventually invited to come to the draft. And um, being 11 pick was just an honor, especially with the company that I kept in that draft. Um, as we know today, it was the best draft ever. So um, I thought it was just spectacular. The company was good. I uh, got to know the, those guys over the years and um, played with several of those guys. And, um, and today I look back and it's like, wow, it's still the top draft ever. What was the vibe around what was taking place at the top of the draft? I mean, if you were around, you know, Akeem and, and, and Jordan and, and, and Bowie, what was the talk among those guys in terms of where they would be and, and, and maybe the other guys about, you know, where MJ well, might be drafted or what have you? Well, that, it really wasn't no big discussion like that then. I mean, it was like guys were somewhat surprised that, um, that Jordan didn't go one. But it wasn't a big talk because it was at that time it was all about the big men. So you got Bowie and you got Olajuwon, and it was like, okay, we kind of expected those guys to go one and two, 
Kevin and I talked about in the hotel the night before the draft. You know, he was both of us as nervous as I don't know what, but you know, I always knew that that's my first time meeting him. What a great guy he is, and um, and talking about you know, once we got there, what it was going to take and excitement, and, you know, what team we're going to get drafted to, things like that. But no one really said, well, we thought maybe you know this guy should have went here, this guy should have went there. It was just like we're there, man. We got invited. Let's see where the dice roll us. Being a, a fashion guy and your mom being a seamstress and you were a fashion and textiles major at Michigan State in the business you've been in now for 30 years, what did you make of Barkley's suit and Hakeem's suit on draft night? Oh, mine too. Mine was terrible. Theirs was terrible. <laughs> I thought, if I'm not mistaken, I think Dream had a tux on. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. And um, But, you know, we were, we were just trying to – figure things out and um, as we began to emerge and we started to come into our own then the fashion thing came into play and you know GQ came into play and it was like you know the NBA's best dressed guys and and you just look back over that man you get a chuckle from it but it was it was fun and it's no different than how they do it today almost but it was just a different time but you know the, the suits were much larger bigger shoulder pads, longer mm-hmm. sleeves, longer coat. It, 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 was, it was funny when you look back at it now, but that's just how it was. And uh, But we were we were clean, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yep. I'd say. And so did did you start to think back to 84 this past week with, with the passing of David Stern? No, without question. I mean, it, it was um, it, it was it was really tough because, you know, you 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 Coming eighty four draft, it's David's uh, first year as commissioner, and um, he's learning how this thing's going to roll out, and, and so they're revamping the league and and finding growth opportunities and expansions. And as we see Serrano come into the league, we watch um, uh, Miami Heat come into the league. We watch other teams start to surface, and at that moment, that was the work of you know David starting to expand and bring in opportunities to different uh, cities and, and communities and, um, and expand the game of basketball. But it was just really heartfelt. And it was, I mean, my heart goes out to his family and uh, he's such a great guy. I had a personal relationship with him as well. And um, he was, uh, you know, I, I did a big, I did an internship um, for five summers because the NBA offers his players opportunities to go back and, and get your degree or if there's a career that you want to, uh, pursue after basketball, you know, hey, guys, start thinking about those things now. And after my fourth year, um, I took advantage of that. I, I called the NBA office and I um, talked to David, set a meeting up, and, and I went to New York and, and, and talked to David, explained to him what I want to do, and, and I want to capitalize off this opportunity that you're presenting to the players. And I did it for five summers straight. And, um, and from that moment on, we began to establish this, this relationship that, hey, this guy is a, um, not only athlete, but he has a good head on the shoulder. He has the willingness and the desire to do something else and, and position himself after the game of basketball is over. And like I say, it's been over 30 years I've been doing it. And um, I give a, a lot of credit to David Stern for offering his players those opportunities to try to do something else after the game stops. I want to go into more detail in terms of that the business side of things, but just in terms of your dealings, knowing David Stern as you did, 
how would you explain to someone who didn't get to interact with him regularly and just saw him maybe on TV what what made him special as a as a commissioner and what those discussions were like that you had? Because he was really he was really serious. He was committed. He was determined to make this game not only um, a global sport, but make it where you know it's the best game in the world from any any sports teams. The NBA was going to be the number one go-to sport, and um, from fans to arenas to the, the entertainment of the arenas to our travel, everything had to be first class. And it took it took time for that to happen. But eventually, as you can see now, it's all because of what he 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 put together many many years ago. But he was just a great person, a straight shooter. Uh, he told you exactly what was on his mind. Um, no sort of no nonsense, funny guy for sure. And um, he was warm and um, uh, approachable and um, he would listen to you. And um, sometimes he'd get on you when he needed to get on you, but um, he was fair. And, um, and that, was, that was the biggest thing with me. And, um, and you have to respect that. And he gave you the time when uh, he said he would do it, he would do it. And, um, and we kind of went from there. But, you know, doing it, doing that time um, for five years, I did the internships. I had to report to his office every morning before I, I left off for my um, my um, my work I had to do for that day, hmm. and um, I would shake his hand and say, "Hey, I'll see you later this afternoon," and um, off I went. And um, we established that relationship. So I um, that's going to be missed big time. More stories from Kevin Willis in a moment. As we're in the midst of the NBA season, NFL playoffs are here, college hoops has started up. It's time to get off the sideline and get in on some of this action with my bookie. If you're going to bet in any of the seasons, do the smart thing. Just go to mybookie.ag because no one gives you more ways to win. And if you join right now, my bookie is really going to hook you up. They'll match your deposit halfway all the way up to $1,000. So that means if you deposit two grand, you get an extra 1000 bucks in free money to play with. Just use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA, L-O-C-K-E-D, on NBA to activate the offer. Promo code locked on NBA to take advantage of MyBookie's generous sign-up offer. Visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. When you when you were starting out in in the fashion industry, and and while you were playing, you were selling a lot of like high-end denim to the players. So then when the dress code came into play. And David Stern said, no jeans. How did right. your conversations go with the commissioner? Because that could have derailed the business. Yeah, it could have, it could have put a big dent in it. But like I said, you know, back in um, 1994, when I started these internships, or 92, I think it was, when I started the internships, at that moment, David knew that I was, I was serious and I was committed and I had this desire and passion to do, do this. And, um, and when the, when, when he put that law, that, um, that, that, uh, thing in about the, the, the dress code in, it was like, wow, when you can't wear denim, you can't wear denim on the, uh, on the bench. So I called, I called David and I said, David, wait a minute, you know, I do denim and you know that that's, that's my, that's my, my bread and butter is denim. And I sell it to a lot of guys. And throughout the league, and um, and I said, 
um, please consider um, if the guys wear the jeans, but they're not going to be jeans that's ripped and torn and all that stuff. They're going to be more of a dress jean. And, um, but please consider that. Next thing I know, it was like, okay, cool. You can wear the jeans, but you have to have a sport jacket on or you have to wear a suit. You can't just wear some raggedy jeans and, and, and come on the bench and represent the league like that. So um, guys was wearing jeans, but they were, they were clean. There weren't – all the jeans weren't mine, but, again, guys were wearing jeans, but they were a little bit more dressier. They looked good with a pair – with a sport coat, things like that. And, um, and we kind of went from there, and I, and I was very happy that he, he allowed the guys to wear the jeans. You mentioned that David made the NBA a first-class operation. When was your first charter flight in the league? Oh, my God. First charter flight was probably 1990, 91, 90 or 91. Uh, do you remember, do you remember any details of finding out that, all right, now we're going to charter yeah, and what I mean, those experiences I mean, were like? Yeah, it, it first started out by using other teams' planes. We were using Charlotte's plane. We were using um, – we were, it was Charlotte and one other team – we would use their plane, and it was it wasn't it wasn't nothing really special about it. It was just the fact that the only one on the plane was the the, the, the coaches, trainers, and players, and uh, whatnot. So that was cool. And every other team started getting planes, getting their own team plane, putting their logos on it, the whole nine yards. And then Atlanta eventually came around to working a deal with. Delta, I believe it was, and we got our own plane through Delta, and it wasn't necessarily customized in size, but they arranged the seats a little differently so you get a little bit more leg room, um, a little wider seats, things like that. They catered the planes. We could bring our own food, things like that, which was um, a big plus for us because we played so many games um, back-to-back things like that, and we come from the East Coast, West Coast, vice versa. And, um, but I remember that, you know, before we started chartering, we, we, we thought it was great that we could use someone else's plane, but that was just, that could be going out to the West Coast. But coming back, they need their plane back, so we had to either charter mm. or um, someone else's plane or fly commercial. And it wasn't until a year and a half or so of the following season where, the deal was struck with Delta, and we had our own plane. It's hard to imagine now NBA teams traveling on commercial flights. Like, just, yeah, just the, would, the fans. That would be ugly. Would be ugly. Uh, would the way be the ugly. fans treat, treat players and all that stuff. Um, yeah. Kevin, uh, I'm curious. You're, you're in Atlanta playing alongside Dominique Wilkins and, and Spud Webb. Um, the best dunks that you saw in practice that we never got to see as fans in a dunk contest or games? Um, Neek would, he would dunk in practice for sure. Uh, but Neek like, Neek really enjoyed doing it in the layup line or especially obviously during the game. Um, he would dunk in practice, but not nothing like he would do um, in games or in warmups. He never practiced what he did, what he was going to do in a dunk contest. He never practiced that. He never said, I'm going to go do this, I'm going to go do that. Neek was just a gifted high flyer that 
did it on a on a whatever whatever he thought about that moment, he was gonna go up there and try to do it because he could get off the floor so high. So it was like, okay, let's just do whatever, you know, watch the next guy dunk and say, you know what, I gotta do something better. And he'd come up with something else. And the power that he possessed was just just unreal. I mean, I used to watch him in the we in the layup line. It's just like wow, especially my first second year. It was like, man, I don't know how this guy got to flow like this. Pigeon toed, all that, and just jump, man. So, but he never really did it like really showing off in practice. He just he dunked sometime if we played the scrimmage game, the the red against the white or something like that, and fans were in there. Then he would he would kind of show off a little bit. But outside of that, nah, he he was he, he was a game time dunker. Big time. And and Spud Webb, uh, I know he and I remember when he entered the dunk contest, people were like, I don't know that we've seen Spud dunking games. It was more about what they had heard that he had done in, in practices. Yeah, in practice he would he would do it. Just just because we were just in practice, he get a, a wide open layup or he get a fast break or something like that. And he'd throw a few of them through. Um and we, we really got a kick out of that because he was only five 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 six at best but spoke you got the floor um, very quick very explosive and um and he was surprised because you don't think he's gonna do it because someone's under the rim no sports going up he's gonna, he's gonna take one down on you and um, <laughs> that was fun but so so when you get in a dunk contest we're in dallas and um and we uh myself and tree rollins were sitting right behind the basket on the floor and it's like and we watched him do this it's like wow spud I didn't know he was going to do that. You know, we throw it, bounce off the floor, catch it, turn around backwards with it. I mean, all these dunks he was doing, it's like, wow. And we really didn't see a lot of that in practice. But um, when, the, when the dunk contest, he was ready. Definitely being at home, too, he was definitely ready. So speaking of Tree Rollins, uh, I came across a YouTube video as we're, as we're researching this by the mm-hmm. Tall Boys. So yeah. you, Cliff Levingston, John Konkak, uh tree rollins uh, and, and <laughs> yeah. you do a song called um hugs not drugs can can you right. tell me about this song oh man it was just a a thing where we were trying to reach out to the community um somewhat in the league about young kids staying away from you know drugs whether it be alcohol but more so drugs marijuana things like that or even any type of drug for that matter and the company came up with this concept, and they wanted us, the tallest guys on the team, to, to, to create this video. And we did it, and it was absolutely a blast. It was fun. We enjoyed it. And um, I think it was um, it was good for the community, for sure. It was definitely good for the community, for sure. And my daughter gets a laugh out of it. She just showed it to me about a year ago. She had, <laughs> um, she, she, she showed it from time to time. And uh, it was really funny, man. But it, it was fun. And we I think we... We just wanted to do a kind of impact the community a little bit and 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 get away from the basketball for a little bit and, and do something else. Well, let's let's get into the the basketball a little bit. Bob Weiss, one of your former head coaches, yes, was quoted in a in a Sports Illustrated article years ago, and and he was talking about your decision making, and he, mm-hmm. and he said that's why coaches don't have guns. What was what was your what was your relationship like with Bob Weiss and also your maturation process through those early parts of your career? Um, I, I like Bob Weiss. Bob Weiss was a a funny guy and trying to 
make his mark in the league, obviously. Um, but guys, you know, when you when you're coached by a coach that really has the this this belief and trust in you, you'll believe you, you, you'll see that some some amazing things can happen with the player, the player and the coach relationship. And I don't know why Bob Weiss would feel some of the ways that he felt about me, whether it's an ill-advised shot, whether it's an ill-advised decision, whether it's – if you're a ball player, that happens, period. It happens. I didn't play 22 years um, and, and, and have some, some really amazing years just because, you know, I'm not out there thinking or I'm not out there playing the game that I love. Um, that's just how he may have felt at that particular time. Man. I mean, it's okay with me. I mean, I, my thing is to go out and play ball, man, play ball. And um, – and, and give everything I have, and which I did every game. So mm-hmm. um, I respect um, the game of basketball. I know my ability. I know what I can do, and um, and I did it. And that was and that was that. So, but you know, coaches going to have their 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 opinion on players about whatever it is. That's okay. Game of basketball. That's how it goes. Yeah, and and a few years before that was the the famous Eastern Conference semifinal game against Boston, Game 7 in Boston, the, the Dominique Larry Bird show. And when Neek went for 47 on 19 of 23 and Bird at 34, 20 in the fourth quarter. When you, right. look, when you look back at that game, or how long, I should say, how long did it take you to look back at that game, think about the opportunity that was lost, but also think about, wow, I was just part of something all time yeah it was it was an amazing series the entire series um how we clawed and fought back and end up um taking the lead in the series and had an opportunity to to to, to put them out and the, i guess some of the inexperience came to the forefront and we ended up having to go to boston for game seven um but it was a it was a it was a learning curve for us and we were on that on that curve and we were ready to make the the right moves to take it to the next level. And um, in that game seven and, and, and Dominique and Bird went off like they did, I thought it was one of the best game sevens ever, ever played. And um, we became almost like, even though we were playing the game, but we were almost like fans watching these guys go back and forth like that. And um, when you're hot, you're hot. And you have to keep feeding those guys because their bird was their leader and Nick was our leader um, on the team. So, um, but we figured after that was over that the following season we would get past Boston. We would get past if it was Detroit. It didn't make us any different. We were young. We were younger. We were more explosive. We just didn't have enough experience, and um, that that was a learning year for us. And I thought the next year, if they keep the team together, if you're going to add one, one piece, so be it. A strong person, another person from off the bench, so be it. But lead a core of the, of the team together. But they ended up deciding to um, breaking it up, and um, that was the end of that. It was it, it was sad for us because we we believed we truly believed that we could have got to the finals the next year. What did you think of the John Concac contract that got so much pub? I thought it was good. Uh, I would never, I would never, I mean, 
just think about it. If you get that type of offer, that type of money, and you say, you know what, I'm not going to take that money um, because <laughs> I'm not averaging, I'm not averaging 17 and nine or 17 and 10. I'm not going to take that money. Well, you're going to be a, a fool either way it go. So I'm going to take the money. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep doing what I do. And when you, when they drafted John, they knew what type of player he was. It's not John's fault he got offered that money. I always said that. It's not his fault. Um, so I, 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 I think John made the right decision. I never faulted John. never said, well, how did John got it? No, no, no. It was his time. And I'll always say that. It was his time. He got the money. So be it. He opened the belief to live not though. He opened the door for a lot of players to get a lot of money. <laughs> right. <That's> for sure. <laughs> yeah. At the, sure. at the time, how much, because I know in the sort of in the media at that time, and, and certainly from, you know, fans perspective who were paying attention, there were, it, there definitely was like a racial component that it felt like that John Conkac got this contract because there were guys in the league that people considered teams needed some white players because that's what, you know, quote unquote fans wanted. There was, there was a belief that was taking place among NBA guys. How much was, was that the case? No, I don't, I don't, I don't think that was the case. That was just someone just talking, trying to figure out, trying to pull something out of the air, man. I, I never thought that John, John, John's just one of the, one of the, probably one of the, my favorite players or my favorite teammates because his attitude, his approach, his leadership, things like that. You have to go out and score 15, 20 points a night. You got to do that, but you can still, you can still be a presence. You can still do things out there for your team that make you win. And John bought that, and he played to his ability. I can tell you that. So um, he didn't lay over when he got the money. He stayed right. the same way. He didn't lay over. So we got guys now who get money, and they dog it on you now. They'll they'll roll over on you now. So um, I never thought it was a, a racial thing. Um, yeah, is it a black? Majority uh, African American, yeah. So be it. That's okay. But now it's you know we got international players. Uh, we got players white, black. It don't make a difference. It's a global. It's a global game. So um, thank you, John Concat. <laughs> right. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Plus, plus, you know, it's interesting that we think about that time and and you know people remember that contract. It's it's interesting. I'm sure now when guys get get big money deals like that there's always going to be though the the counter argument people always say well i i got some analytics to prove why john concacks worth that that contract and, mm -hmm. and such as you as you sort of point out you played you self-described as early on in your career as quote rage and that willis mm -hmm. reed tried tried calming you down and even a, you played a game in houston and Elijah asked you why do you always look so mad and upset right. he tried to tell you to relax and, and have fun right. from what i read that that changed sort of how your approach was. How much truth is there in that? It's a hundred. It's a hundred percent because you know when I came in the league, it was obviously right at the mid '80s. Now you met them. It was '84, so it wasn't at the midway point. But um, you know you had to be this enforcer. You had to you know sort of my thing was to to let no team come in here and just think you can just dog us around things like that. So you had your Oakleys. You had your Thorpes, you had your um, Buck Williams, you had your Charles Barkleys, 
you had um, all your power forwards out there, man, that sort of Rick Mahorn. You had guys that were, they were the enforcers. And so that was my thing. That was my mindset. That's how it was going to be. And, um, and I took on that challenge. I took on that responsibility. I wasn't going to let nobody just hit Dominique. I wasn't going to let that happen or Doc Rivers or any, any of the guys on the team. And that was my position. And, um, and at, at, at times, yeah, I would take it to the next level and overdo sometimes. But that's immaturity. That's um, trying to learn the game, timing, when to and what not, um, learning your personnel, um, knowing the referees, things like that. So after a while, you know, I remember I, I remember when, one game I was playing in Houston and I'm out warming up. And my thing is, I know I got Ralph Sampson, I got Akeem Olajuwon, and I remember these guys coming up through college, this and that. They got the big names, things like that. But I got to, I got to hold my own. And so I'm out warming up, and um, I get there early, as I always did. And um, and then Olajuwon comes out, and he's warming up. And my thing is, I'm not speaking to you because I'm I'm getting ready to come at you. You're gonna come at me. So why I got to speak to you? I got to put on this smile on my face and but I was walking off and then all of a sudden he was actually right where the tongue is in Houston and and he says hello and I say hello to him with this sort of like hey man what's up like that and um and he he just said hey um why can't you record I said yeah he said why are you why do you always look so mad or you're like you're angry and I and I was kind of looking at him like kind of question is that and it's like (laughs) And he says, man, just, just, it's just a game. It's have fun, man, and just enjoy it, man, and relax and just, cause it's just a game. And he said, man, just have fun, man. It's, we are competing, uh, boom, 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 st- stuff like that, man. And I said, yeah, okay. And so when I'm walking back to that tunnel, I get in the locker room, and I started to think about that. And that's when it hit me, and I said, I can't lie to myself because he's right. It's nothing but a game. It's a game. We all play it. We love it. We compete. And we want to have fun at it. And uh, we wish each other luck, whatever. But but we, we can still compete, but we still have to have, have fun. And I thought about that, not only that game, but games after that. And then I remember in Atlanta when we were, we were playing, and I was playing, and I got – three or four fouls and I'm, I'm angry at the referees and I'm, I get a technical and, and I'm like just furious, man. And I'm sitting at the bench and I'm like, I don't throw any chairs or anything, but I'm sitting down there and I'm, I'm really, really mad. And I'm looking at Fratello cause he's pissed off. And, um, and so Willis Reed comes down to the end of the bench and Big Will, man, that's my guy, man, and I love Willis. And he was like, and I thought he was going to talk about what I just did. Willis talked to me about something, man, that had me laughing so hard that I couldn't even control it. I was laughing, man. And he says after that, he said, how you feel? I said, I'm good, Will, and I'm just laughing because what he said, but he said, now that you're relaxed, and now your mind is not where it was three minutes ago, whatever, go out and play, play your game. 
And from that moment on, he said, then he said, remember, it's 90% of it is mental and 10% is physicality. Go play your game. And from that well, moment on, my career went to a different level. You know? what, did he, what did he say? It was just, I can't recall that, because I'm thinking he's going to talk about, man, you can't do this. You picked up a four file. You can't be fouling. You can't. He didn't do anything like that. He was talking about something, man, that whatever it was, it could have been something that was just totally off left field that had nothing to do with basketball. That I know. That's funny. And I I wish I could recall what he said to me. I would call him and ask him. But it was just unbelievable. And from that moment on, my career went into a different direction. That moment on. Him and the larger one. You're known, and, and I think it's a good thing, that when, when anybody's ever asked me for who's your all-back alley team, Kevin Willis is, is always a member of that team. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I'd ask you, who would, who would the other four guys be in your all-back alley team? Oh, man. Uh, Charles. Oakley. Um, you mean as far as other players, right? Yeah. Yeah, Oakley. Um, you got guys like um, Buck Williams. Um, one, one more. Let's see. I would say, I would say Rick Mahorn. Okay. Mhm. Mhm. And I love, I love that you and Oakley played played together in Toronto. Why? Yeah. Uh, that. Speaking of back alley and being tough why did you start wearing elbow pads well guys used to think i wore it because i was trying to i guess so i wouldn't knock somebody's teeth out but no it happened in college when i i injured my elbow i I hit somebody else's arm i did something but it, it, it affected the funny bone so when you hit that that nerve on the on your elbow it just numbs your whole arm up and it was only on my right arm at one time. And believe it or not, I ended up doing the left. And so every time I'm playing, it was so sensitive at times that if I just hit it real, it could be gingerly. And it would send this, it would, all my fingers would get numb like, and it's like, oh, and this is a painful thing when you hit that funny bone. It's a funny feeling, but, and then I started wearing these elbow pads. And, and once that, that started. I never, I never changed it. They were my war pads. That was it. So once I put them on, that was it. It's time to go. But it was never to, you know, inflict pain. If I want to inflict real pain, I wouldn't wear them. I just use my, just use my elbow. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? So you know, it's like boxing. You're not going to go out there and fight with no gloves on. You will kill somebody. So it was like, no, these things are for those reasons and those reasons only. 1992, you get a chance to play in the all-star game to make an all-star game in the NBA is just otherworldly, just how rare it is. The the amount of guys that have played in all-star games in the NBA. Um, I was wondering if you could take us through that first in terms of finding out that you had made the team. And then of course, 92's all-star game is so memorable. We'll, we'll go through some of, some of that night itself, but just finding out, first of all, what, what, where what were you, you when you found out? Where were we in Milwaukee? And, um, 
Arthur Trish was, the, you know, the athletic, not the athletic, he was the, um, the um, PR guy at, at the Hawks at that time. And um, so I'm, I'm averaging, I guess, 19, 19 and a half, 20 points. And at that time I was averaging about maybe 17 and a half, 18 rebounds a game. And he comes to me, we got shoot around, and I still didn't hear anything. And it's like, I still haven't heard anything. And then after the shoot around, he comes up to me and said, hey, Kev, congratulations. I said, what's up? He said, you're an all-star team. And I was like, really? I said, okay, cool, man. I said, thanks, man, for looking out, uh, let me know. And um, I felt that I should have been there that year for sure. And um, and we were we had, a, we had a good record. We were playing well. And, and personally, I, you know, my numbers spoke for themselves. And, hey, I thought I should have been there, and I was fortunate enough to get there. So, it was a great show. I mean, you know, with Magic announcement, Magic coming to play an all-star game, and, um, Michigan State, and all that for that, that thing. And, and it was just it was a great time. Just a great time in Orlando. So – yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask you about. So being that you had the Magic Johnson connection, we can go into that too, but just how everything was taking place during that time in, in 92, what what were your conversations with Magic like and what were the other teammates like about playing in that game with him? What what, what How can you describe what, what that situation well, it, was like? It was, it, was, it, was, it, w- it really wasn't spoken about that much. Or maybe you might have heard Carl Malone uh, speak out on some issues about it and things like that. But guys kind of kept it to themselves and um, and welcomed Magic. You know, we welcome Magic. It's like, you know, Magic, if it went for Magic, this league wouldn't be like it is. And um, he came out and he he did what Magic does um, because I, I don't think I – it's only two, two or three guys I can say that ever loved the game like this guy that I know of. Um, and so he had a great showing, obviously, and um, we welcomed him. And um, I remember um, after he hit that long, long three-pointer, long half-court shot, and um, to end it, it was just amazing. And um, I embraced him, man. It's like you know, like nothing ever happened. Because mm-hmm. it was like it was, a, it was a special moment, not only for the league but for him. Staying on Magic for a moment, Kevin. How did he? recruit you to Michigan State? What were those details? Um, I, when I went to Jackson Community College, I was being recruited um, by U of M and Michigan State. And I knew that I wanted to be, originally I wanted to go, I, I, I didn't want to go to Michigan. I wanted to go to Michigan. And because um, my, my best friend was on his way, he was thinking about going to Michigan too. So I said, let's, let's double it up, man. Let's go together. And um, and I remember went and, I went and visit Michigan State's campus and whatnot, and I was just just blown away by it. And it was like, wow. So my my mind began to shift, and I never went and visited Michigan. Actually, they didn't even invite me to come. They invited my buddy hmm. to come. Wow. And I remember. Michigan, Bill Frieder and Judd Heathcote coming to one of my games at Jackson, and they came and watched me play. And so that game, I think I had a decent game, but 
afterwards, uh, the next day, the coach came to me and he says, um, you know, Jed Heathcote and Bill Frieda were here. Um, and which one do you want to hear first? I said, whatever, just whoever, I don't care who. He said, well, um, Bill Frieda says that he doesn't think you're ready for Big Ten basketball. And Judd Heathcote says that um, it would be it would be an honor to have him because he's fast, he's quick, he's athletic, he's raw, and he's seven foot, and we'll be in heaven with Kevin. And so <laughs> it was like, yeah, I'm going to Michigan State because now I'm, I'm on this I'm on this mission now that when you play against me, when Michigan plays against Michigan State. You're going to know. I'll let you know if I'm really, really ready for the Big Ten basketball. And so the rest <laughs> is history. <laughs> so my, my thing was, you know, Michigan State. And then how I got recruited from Jackson, too, was um, Magic came up to the junior college. And he surprised the world out of me, man. I'm like, what? And he came up. He hung out with me for maybe an hour or so, man. We were walking around campus, and he would be a big just they just won the championship man it's like wow man magic up here with me man and and, and once magic did that it was like it really swayed me man it was like man i'm going to state i know i'm going now and um that was the end of that and i was i was a spartan (laughs) yep ah what's your relationship with magic like now good man good i just saw him he was here this was last Matter of fact, it was last season, towards the end of last season, he and the Hawks, he came, he was in town with the um, with some other players doing something, but um, we got an opportunity to, to chat it up, man, and get some pictures, man, like that. And um, But real good, real good. Magic's always been that guy for me, always. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, of, and of course, Magic had you know, succeeded under Pat Riley, and then you end up going to Miami in a deal and playing for Pat Riley. That that year, ninety four, ninety five, you get traded two games into the season. Right. How did that how did that all go down to be traded two games into a season? You know, I, I it was it was really a, a shocker to me. Um but being the professional I'm, I, I was, I'm I'm in I'm in my tenth year now, so I really understand I'm beginning to understand the business of basketball. It's one thing to play and all that. That's great. But now you have to understand the other side of it. And you can be moved, traded, any game, any day, any game. doesn't make a difference. It's a business. And once I accepted that, then I was okay for whatever came down the pipe. And I, I never, I'll never forget that between Lenny Wilkins and Pete Babcock, when someone's looking at you awkwardly and they're kind of trying to figure this thing out and I'm warming up and they're out there on the court and they're looking at me and they're, whatever they're thinking, whatever their assessments are, whatever their thinking is, I was prepared for it. And when I walked back to the um, locker room after warming up for the game, um, um, I think Lenny, Lenny said something to me. I said, hey, I said, coach, What's going on with this? I'm hearing about I'm getting I'm hearing about these rumors. And he said, Oh, no, no, no. No one's trading. You're not getting traded. No, 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 no. 
don't worry about that. So, okay. So I go in the locker room and continue to do what I do and um, come out, play the game. I think at that time I was averaging 20 and 18 again. It's like, okay, next game, amazing stats. Then we go to, I think we're in Utah. Yeah, we're in Utah. We go straight to Utah and we go to shoot around practice. And I get this, I get this funny look from Lenny again. He's looking at me weird, like, <laughs> like, like, why does dude keep looking at me like this? <laughs> and and before you do it, I kind of you know play it off and I finish practice and we uh, go back to the hotel, pregame meal, go to sleep, and then about three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, I'm 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 ready to get myself ready. I'm asleep, and I get this bee on the door, and I'm thinking it's the the maid. I say, hey, "Go away, come back later." <laughs> and and he says, "No, this is Coach Wilkins." So I get up and I answer the door, and he comes in and he says, "Sorry to wake you up, um, but I wanted to be the one to tell you that um, um, you've just been traded." And I said. Traded. I'm I'm like sleep, man. I'm like, damn, I think I'm dreaming. And he says, yeah. So when he when he says, yeah, you, you've been traded. I said, wait, trade to where? He says, you've been traded to Miami for Steve Smith, Grant Long, and some other pick or something. And I said, who else is going? He said, well, you don't want to trade it. They just traded you. I said, okay. And I woke up immediately. I'm alert. I'm sharp. And I said. Um, uh, so what's next? He said, well, we're going to get your flight and stuff arranged. Joel O'Toole will have your flight and stuff. Okay. Thanks, coach. Boom, boom, boom. He leaves. I get on the phone, make a couple phone calls, pack my stuff, go see all my guys on the team. So I see you guys later, man. I just got traded. And they, like, shocked. They, like, blown up, man. They're like, what? I said, yeah, man. So I'm gone, man. So I'm on my way to Miami, man. I go to Miami. They welcome me with a, um, open arms, and here it goes. Kevin Lockery and the crew, and <laughs> here we go, and um, and it was fun. So from that point on, I knew that hey, this is this is this is a different business, man. But I wasn't really really overly shocked though, because I was basically prepared for it. And then after, after him telling me I wasn't going to get traded, and then a day and a half later, he comes in the room and tells me I am traded. Well, I have to also think that you probably thought you're going to be a hawk for the rest of your life, and then it's six teams in five years after Atlanta. So. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's remarkable how, how things turn, um, 2002 season finishes up, uh, and you're, you're in the midst of free agency and you sign with the Spurs and it's wild to think here you are a guy from the 84 draft. We're now in 2002, you haven't won an NBA championship and you right. decide to sign with the Spurs. Um, I'm curious what that that free agency period was like, and then and then why you thought the Spurs would be the team to get you there. Well, I, I always thought that, you know, when I when I when I was with Houston the season prior that I was with Houston, and I made my that was my second stint in Houston, and then um, I remember Carol Dawson was a GM and. Carol called me and he said, well, Carol called me and said, hey, he just had a talk with the San Antonio Spurs. They called Houston inquiring about me. 
Mm-hmm. And Carol Dawson is, ah, what kind of guy is he? Boom, 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 boom. And nothing but high praise from Carol. Um, and next thing I know, I get a call from the Spurs. And they say, I talked to Papa Bitch. He says, hey, we would love to have you. We talked to Houston. They had nothing but great things to say about you. We would love to have you on our team. I say, I would love to be there, Coach Pop. Um, what's, what, what do I need to do? He said, well, I'm going to send my guy down. You're going to bring the contract to your home. They flew him in. Lance Blanks flew to my house, had the contract, and I said, really? So I'm really excited. It's late into the – I think it's probably going in August or sometime like that. And it's like, okay. I said, I need to, I need to ask you um, a favor, Mr. Blanks. I said, please tell me you have number 42 available. He said, we got 42 available. And he took it right out of his bag. And when he took that number out of his bag, I signed that contract, and it was history. Everything so, else was history. So, wait, Kevin, if the Spurs didn't have 42 available, there's a chance that you wouldn't have signed with them? No. There's not a chance I would have. I would have signed with them for sure. Um, I was just I was just hoping that they had 42. <laughs> or that someone would give it to you. Because I knew I had to have 42. I just wanted 42. That's my number, and um, and because uh, in Houston I had number forty, I think it was forty-three. Because um, uh, Walt Williams had forty-two when I was there, and oh, so yeah. the wizard, uh, the wizard, my guy, and um, and um, I got forty-two, and that just really sealed the deal with me. Really sealed the deal with me. And then so, when I got to San Antonio, man, it was it was on. Well, yeah, absolutely. You guys win an, an NBA championship. How did you celebrate? Um, we celebrated. Um, but I stayed up all night because I was so excited. Um, I couldn't sleep. Um, I stayed until I stayed at the arena until I think one one thirty in the morning, just sitting around, <laughs> just having fun, man. And uh, eventually, I got home at two or three in the morning. It took me an hour to get home because the streets are still packed. And um, finally got home and couldn't sleep and finally went to sleep and got up the next day. Went and I think uh, we went met. I think we met at the arena two days later or something like that and and had a little meeting and whatnot. And then um, we went and played paintball. Tim and the whole team went and played paintball, man. Had a, a blast. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, man. We had, we, had, we had a hell of a team, man. It was great guys, man. Just great guys. Did, did uh did Tim was he buying clothes from you? Oh Tim, he buys clothes from me today. Good. Yeah. David, Tim, Malik. Did you ever get try to get Tim to wear anything more form fitting? Uh <laughs> yeah. I got him I got him into some some denim now that is a little closer to the leg, a little cleaner. And uh he loves them. So actually okay. I'm waiting on my new my new stuff to come in so I can send to him. But okay. That was the that was an absolute unbelievable team, and Popovich is the absolute best, hands down, hands down, the absolute best. Popovich, man, I, I I told Pop when they when they won their last championship, number five, I think it was, yeah. Called Pop up, and I told him I said, hey, congratulations, I want to call you, say congratulations. 
how you how you keep this team like this and keep these guys motivated and keep doing what you've done and and it's been now I've been removed out of San Antonio since 2005 so I'm gone maybe 10 years maybe maybe 10 somewhere up in there but I know I was gone a while and he said this a, a good group of guys um, and we just we buy into they buy into it they buy into the system they buy into each other. They play for each other, this and that. And I said, Pop, I said, man, if I was with you in nineteen in the nineties, I'd be in the Hall of Fame. I said it would be it would it'd be hands down because not only won championships, but my game would have just evolved because he was such that type of coach that the respect that he gave the players, it wasn't no favoritism. It wasn't um, him saying he's going to do one thing and, 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 and don't do it. He says what he's going to do and he does it. He's respectful. He, um, he demanded the, um, the, the best of the, his, his players. Um, and he, he knew how to motivate. He knew how to get the best out of the players. And when you get on your star player, like he did with Tim or David or Tony Amano, and he does the same thing with the 12th and 13th man, and he, res- he respects every player on that team. And you got to love it. You got to love it. I've had coaches where they they are intimidated by their their superstars. They feed you a lot of BS. No, this guy was a straight shooter. And if he if he asked me today to come back and try out and play, do you know I would go back and try out and play? <laughs> wow. I sure would. I sure would. I would train like nobody's business, but that's the type of guy he is. And um, I just knew that, you know, how he allowed me to, you know, I'm 40, I'm 40 years old. I think it, when I won that championship, 41 or something like that. And, and I'm, he's allowing me to play and I'm, I'm in practice and I'm, I'm beating guards in drills where there's suicide drills, where there's sprints. It's, and I'm forward, I'm beating, I'm beating the, all the big men. I'm beating the, the small forwards. Every once in a while, Tony will get me or somebody like that. But, and he says, stop running with the bigs. Get your butt down there and run with the guards. <laughs> and, and that type of coach to me was amazing because he saw the he saw the he saw something in me that he's like, no, we we need him. We need his physicality. We need his his leadership and how I was in the locker room. He didn't need me to score a lot of points. He needed me to get a lot of rebounds. But that didn't mean that I had that mindset. So I'm going go out there and get try to get you ten. I'm gonna try to get you fifteen, twelve, fifteen points, regardless. Any moment any minute you give me, I'm gonna I'm gonna take advantage of it. If it's one minute, I'm gonna give you everything I got. If it's twenty minutes, I'm gonna give you everything I got. And that's that's the type of coach I like playing for. What, was it even more special ending the Lakers dynasty? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely putting them to sleep. No question about it. <laughs> no question. Every, definitely putting them down, for sure. But, you know, Lakers were a tough team, and, 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 and San Antonio had their, their, their struggles with them. And, um, but, you know what? That year, I didn't care who they had. I didn't care about all that. I'm, I'm coming off the bench. 
and I know what I can do, and I know what you guys can't do. You're not going to be able to run with me, and I'm going to drive you insane because I'm going to keep moving, I'm going to keep doing, I'm going to keep offensive rebounding, I'm, I'm going to play my game. So Pop allowed me to do it, and we won that championship, man. That was the best, the, the best moment in my entire career. Uh, we kept you for a long time. We just want to throw a few quick hitters your way. Um, first of all, for me, so you just said that you uh, played paintball after winning championship. That's what yeah. Tim Duncan and company like to do. What are what are nights out like with Dominique Wilkins? <laughs> Unbelievable. Dominique was totally the, totally the opposite of the paintball. <laughs> <laughs> no, Meek, Meek was Meek was a guy who who really enjoyed basketball. He loved it. He was committed to it. I don't even have to tell you how much, I mean, the impact he put on the league and, and for his team. But he enjoyed hanging out. He enjoyed going out to eat dinner. He enjoyed going out to his, because Nick had a couple of nightclubs. And we'd go out to the club after the game, hang out, and have a, just a great time. Good fun, though. Just good fun. And um, we were young, and and that's what we were supposed to do. But everything was clean. It wasn't any big hiccups. And, and, and obviously, social media was nowhere near where it is today. But luckily. We had, we had, luckily. Yeah, luckily. And we had fun. We had fun. But it was, um, it was all good. I mean, we, we, we interacted with um, fans. We weren't just, you know, in our own little clip. We would go out and hang out with friends at the club, things like that. And the fans respected us. And, and it was just a great time. Great time. Neek was Neek is for sure definitely. When you're talking about your your top two players in the league that teammates, there he is, Dominique. There's no question about it. These quick hits are gonna be all over the place. Ninety two rock and jock game with Leonardo DiCaprio, Joey yep. Lawrence, Queen Latifah. Yep. Yep. Give give us your best story from the nineteen ninety two rock and jock game. Well, that was fun. I mean, you know, Queen Latifah is at the height of her, her career. She was doing her thing. DiCaprio was just a young fella, you know, trying to, you know, he was, on, he was a button superstar and and whatnot. And, and everybody that was, you know, in Hollywood right now was, you know, a couple of those guys on the on, on that rock and jock team. It was fun. I remember Flea um, from his the group um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, and which was a great guy and his crew. I mean, it, it, it was just fun times and. and Queen the team out there playing ball, being being who she is. It, it, it was fun. It was a great time. Back then, it was great doing those things. Advice you'd give someone who's looking to up their uh, their fashion game? Call me. <laughs> <laughs> call call Wallace and Walker. But no, it's it's all about the it's all about the color balance and the symmetry of the garments and the fit, and knowing that you know euro euro fits aren't for everybody. That's for sure. Um, that's, that's for sure because you have to have the the frame to pull it off. And if you don't have the frame, then you have to have the the symmetry and the and the, the garment needs to be balanced. It has to be the patterns have to be right. The fit has to be right. And the the the, the when you say textures, meaning whether it's stripes, whether it's plaid, whether it's prints, things like that, it have to you have to you have to be able to fit into those molds. You can't just put on a everybody can't wear a um, a plaid shirt, or everybody can't wear a color a, a color block with a, a million colors on it. Everybody can't do that type of stuff. So you got to know where your 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 sweet spot is when you're talking about color, 
um, prints, patterns, and stripes, things like that. And more importantly, it's the it's the it's the fit. The fit has got to be spot on. Are you the best player ever to wear size thirteen shoes? Best player to ever wear a size thirteen shoe. Um, Patrick Ewan wore a thirteen. The beast. Oh wow! Really? Yeah, Big Pat wore thirteen too. So I can't take that because Big Pat did his okay. thing, man. Yeah, Big Pat, man. He's um he's a he's a big customer of mine too, and um love Pat. Um, um so he wore thirteen. So I can't take that title, man. I don't know anybody else wore thirteen, but other than myself, unless it's a guard or somebody. <laughs> We're big man now. Uh-huh. Give me, give me the story that you first think of about being Charles Barkley's teammate in Houston. Oh man, Charles was just between him and Jerome Kersey. Those two guys are my favorite opponents. Um. Charles, because we used to battle, and we battled hard, and I still got a, I got a couple of scars from, from Charles still to this day. And it always was a respect thing, um, and knowing that you're going to war against me every night. And then we became teammates. We just had an absolute blast. We stayed in the same building um, in Toronto. Um, I told him about it. He didn't even have to look at anything else. Where's it at? Take me there. Let's go. And he got him a spot there. And um, we had fun. On Sundays, we used to dress um, all black. We black out on Sunday. Everything we're wearing for the game, is everything's blacked out hmm. because it's about business, intimidation, and we come in, we, and we come, to, we, come to, we come in at you. And so that was our, our mental thing that we would wear all black. And, um, but one of the best till this day, that's my dog for sure. And bless my boy, Jerome Kersey. We started all the way back when we were, before we got drafted in Chicago, playing in the, um, in the, uh, pre-draft camp thing in Chicago. And, um, we became great friends and bless his soul that he passed on. But that's some, those two guys right there, man. Yeah, for sure. We always hear about perimeter players who talk a lot of course Gary Payton comes to mind but yeah who talked the most of the guys that you faced in the post Jawan used to talk when he was with the Wizards really early on Jawan early on yes early on I I could I could hear him at times um talk um Rick Rick would talk a little bit uh, more so than anybody, um, but not a lot of guys, big guys, talk a lot of junk um, because I'm a neutralizer. And after a while, it's going. We going. I'm gonna end it because I'm gonna come at you. I'm gonna come at you. And Dream, Dream didn't talk. He would just, he would just annihilate you and just embarrass you and just smile and just laugh. <laughs> I saw, oh, man. He didn't smile, man. He knew can't do nothing with me. So it was like it was just funny, man. It's like, well, I got to figure this guy out, man. I got to figure this guy out, man. He got too many moves on the defensive end. He causes havoc on the offensive 
outside. You you can't you can't do anything with him. So he was he was he was a guy. He just smile at you, man. Just smile, man, and just keep doing you do what he does. <laughs> yeah. And 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 Vince Carter. So you were with Vince his rookie year in Toronto, and now he's down there in Atlanta, and he and he breaks your record for yeah. you know time time played in the NBA. What what is it? what is it that you remember about Vince rookie year and how does it make you feel seeing Vince still playing in the league right in your backyard? Well, it's, it's, it's really special and surreal to me because when he was a rookie, we were in Toronto and they used to call me OG, old head, things like that. <laughs> and I was, I think I was in my 15th year or somewhere up in there. And it was like, yeah, man, I used to tell him and T-Mac, I say, T Mac. First of all, you need to you need to stop falling asleep on the bench and practice. You need to, you got to stay awake. You, you you keep falling asleep. I just tell him, Vince, you guys rather hope that you get the 15 years because you you little snot nosed rookies. But you know they they were they were great great rookies, great talent, and Vince was just an amazing amazing player, athlete, everything. And um, he was the leader on the team. And, um, and I should tell him, man, just, just keep doing what you're doing, man. And when he got to, I think he was over 15 years, I would ask him, man, listen, keep going. You get in that 20 club, get into the 20 club, man. 18 years, get to the 20 club, man. You're almost there. And before you know it, not only are you in the 20 club, you're about to break my record and you're going to break my record and you're playing for the Hawks. Mm -hmm. So and I told him, I said, if you, if you, if you play 21, I'm coming back, coming back and playing. I'm not going to let you break my record. <laughs> but I was, you know, we got to kick out of it, man. But I told him, I said, congratulations. I hug him like I always do, man. Tell him congratulations, man. Well-deserved to see you come from a rookie year and to see where you're at now and see him still being able to play at this level and competing like you do, man. Proud of him. Um, wish him the best, and he's got the record, well deserved. And um, I will not be coming back, so I'm gonna have to sit mm. behind him right now. That's all right, because um, that's my guy. He um, he's done he does some amazing stuff and um, had a great career. And um, who knows, he he could play another one. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and you're not coming back unless Popovich calls. That's the that's the only if way. Pop call they... me back. I'm starting training. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, we really appreciate the time. The last question that we ask all our guests, this is the Rejecting the Screen podcast. So if you could pick one teammate in all your time, all those years you talk about, one teammate, end of game situation, must win spot, you pick one guy to reject the screen, go ISO for a bucket, who are you choosing? I'm going without hesitation, without question. I'm going with Mono Ginobili. That's what I'm going with. Wow. That's what I'm going with. Why wait, is that when you, when you said, wait, hold on. Because when, when you said without hesitation, I just assumed that would be Dominique. I thought no. it was Akeem. No. I'm going with Mono Ginobili. <laughs> People think I'm crazy, man, when I how I feel about this guy's game and 
what he can do. And he wasn't even the man. He was he was he was the 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 one that the, obviously the, in the top three guys on the team. But Tim was a, Tim was the go to. But Mono, no, I'm going with him. Give him the ball. I'm going with him. I'm going with him. That's what I'm going with. All right. Well, we encourage everybody to check out the clothing line, Willis and Walker. It's not not meant for me, right? At at five nine. Um, I think you know I've I've done stuff for my 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 boy Gary Sheffield, so I'm quite sure I can. It's not it's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, but Sheff Sheffield's got a little bit more bulk than I than I do. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll I'll see if I can just gain some inspiration from the clothing line. I also suggest that folks check out what what Kevin has done with the Atlanta Children's Foundation. The the village yeah. summer camp for foster care children is mm-hmm. spectacular. Thank you. Is, is, Thank you. is spectacular. Uh, Kevin, we appreciate all the time, and we're looking forward to catching up again whenever we see each other. Yes, that'd be great, man. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. So of all of his teammates, to reject the screen and go ISO, Manu. Manu. 11 seasons in Atlanta, three in Houston, three in Toronto, two in San Antonio, two in Miami, one in Denver, one in Golden State, one in Dallas. Manu Ginobili gets the nod. Right, so That's he had, pretty incredible. He, he had Dirk. I mean, he, he's been teammates with, oh, you, with, with Dirk, T-Mac, Barkley, Vince, Duncan. Manu, David Robinson, Duncan, 20-year-old Tony Parker in, in 03. Did I mention Dominique? <laughs> it's remarkable when you consider the list of guys that that he was teammates with it's it's really incredible and honestly though Noah, i think what struck me the most is just this idea as we as we spoke to him it's such a good guy but this idea that when he gets traded doesn't know it's coming i just keep coming back to the idea he must have thought he was going to be an atlanta hawk for the rest of his career he thought he'd spend 20 years if maybe if he thought he was going to play 20 years that he's going to spend 20 years. And he ends up playing for all these teams, has all these experiences, and really has become just a tremendous ambassador for the game. Yeah, sure. And then, I mean, as you mentioned, then it was the six teams in five years. So you realize that it's a business, and then you get traded and traded and traded and traded and traded again. And then I mean, sign for your championship. Sign a free agent deal for your exactly. championship. Yep, in 2003. And, and you can hear how he feels about Greg Popovich, but for a guy who played for so long and – then in, in that season gets his championship 2003. So, and going back to our Tuesday podcast, my intern year at the NBA was the summer of 2003. And my first days as an intern were during the NBA finals in East Rutherford, New Jersey, Nets Spurs and seeing Kevin Willis out there. I have vivid memories of Kevin Willis being out there on the floor for the San Antonio Spurs to win that championship. And, and by the way, you talk about vivid memories of of seeing Kevin Willis. If you've seen him in person, it makes awful good sense then why there weren't a lot of big men that he could come up with who talked trash. Nobody's yeah, talking trash, talking trash to, to Kevin him. Willis. There's other guys that they'll talk to, but they're not talking. How about, to how about Bullets Jawan Howard talking trash? <laughs> That's amazing. Well, how about how about that that Kevin Willis can still bench, can still max four oh five. That's the, we could have done the whole podcast just asking about his his weightlifting. Four hundred and five uh, pounds. Kevin Willis can still bench, and he is how old? Fifty two. 
55? 57. 57? Kevin Willis is 57 and can bench 405 pounds. All right, so you can go back and listen to all the other going ISOs. Since, you know, a lot of things we talked about here with Kevin Willis, they're evergreen, which means that they're not time sensitive. So don't worry about when this was recorded. You can go back and listen anytime, and we encourage you to do so with former players like Richard Jefferson, who he beat in the 2003 NBA Finals, PJ Carlissimo, who we played against for years and as PJ was a head coach, Peter Vesey, who covered Kevin Willis, all these guys that are connected to Kevin Willis in some way. Make sure you go back and listen to all those. You can follow Adam on Twitter at NaismithLives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Subscribe, rate, review, and share it. Because I know you learned something from this podcast. So now all you have to do is click share, send it to a friend and say, yeah, I just heard that Kevin Willis could bench 405 pounds and he's 57 years old. Check this out. And then listen to it. Makes sense to me. Adam, thanks, pal. You're the best.